Right, what's your name? My name is Harry Connick. Where are you from, Harry? I'm from New Orleans. Why do birds suddenly appear? Starts unbuttoning her shirt and she starts raising her shirt up. This is Sandra Bullock. <laughs> and on her stomach was written, You got the part. Look for the bare necessities. I wrote a song for you. But I can't accompany myself and play the trumpet and sing at the same time. I know you said I was talented, but I just can't do everything. <laughs> oh, God, I'm so... Are you a bit nervous? Uh, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm so nervous. I'm so sorry. I'm telling you the truth. He goes, when are you going to lose that fake accent? And I was like, you know, I'm glad that you haven't told anybody because for me, you know, I've been, this whole New Orleans thing is a scam. I come from Brooklyn, but I find that people find this Southern accent endearing. So what are you going to sing for us today, Harry? Um, it had to be you. It had to be you. Harry Connick Jr. has been performing since the age of three. I wandered around. Music, found Broadway, somebody who movies, television. Could make me be he loves the stage, he loves the lights, he loves the microphone. Could make me be blue. He loves to connect. Or even be glad just to be sad, thinking of you. And then COVID takes it all away. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Today I'm chatting with Harry Connick Jr. So to get to your album, which is fantastic, by the way, I first want to kind of do the backstory and who you are, where you came from, and your roots. Okay, sure. Take, take advantage of, uh, of all the great wisdom you offer people. So thank you. So you're born and raised in New Orleans. Before we get into what that was like, I was stranded in New Orleans. There was an ice storm in Eastern Canada. I had to spend three days after a gig. I do a lot of speaking for a living. I'll tell you something, I love the city. I've been to New Orleans before, but I'd never had enough time to go through the entire core, the magic of it. It was just an incredible experience, but more than anything else, it's this great fusion of so many different cultures have come together. In many ways, defines the United States. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. It's um, it's an unusual place, and and growing up there, you don't really see the the uniqueness of it in, 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 until you leave. Um, the the diversity there, the fact that it's three quarters black, the type of uh, musical diversity they have, everything from brass bands, which to us was like a Every city, you know, has guys walking down the street in a brass band. The modern jazz or traditional jazz, the rhythm and blues, the gospel, like all of all of these types of music. The food that we eat, you know, is unique to New Orleans. And, and you know, I just thought that's the way it was everywhere. And it wasn't until I moved away that I realized what a unique place it was. So and the, and the idea that that these diverse cultures can exist with all of their differences and still be celebrated at the same time. So all of those things I think are, are, are traits of the, the best things that America can be. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's one of those cities that you define as magical because when you leave, you leave a piece of your heart there. You grew up and I, I was so interested to hear, I mean, you're the pedigree of your family, your mom, a lawyer, then a judge, by the time you're, I think you're six or seven, your dad's a, district attorney, but at the same time, you own a record store, not a bookstore, which I kind of would fit in with that sort of 
legal profession. So tell me a little bit about your parents and the sort of eclectic law, music, and everything that came together to, to make Harry Connick Jr. Sure. So my dad, he was born in Mobile, Alabama, and my grandfather was supposed to go to North Africa in the early 50s. To He worked, he was with the Corps of Engineers, and they were building a, a literal ring of military base in, in the area. I think they you would know better than me. It's the ring of something, but it was in, uh, in, in North Africa and it was to build as a defense for that particular region. And my grandpa couldn't go for health reasons or something. And my dad said, I'll go. So he went and was working for the Corps of Engineers. This is in like the early fifties. And then my mother, who was a Jewish woman from New York, decided that she wanted to travel the world. So she went to Turkey and all of these places and ended up in North Africa, met my dad. They eloped there. They got married in uh, Casablanca and had their honeymoon in Tangier or vice versa, I think. They moved back to New Orleans and uh, where my dad was living at the time. I guess it was, you know, years Years after that, they my sister was born 64. I was born 67. But in the meantime, they had a record store to put themselves through law school. And this was before I was born. So this this was probably 10 years before I was born. But by the time I came along, they had a big record collection. They had a record player. So music was always played in the house. My mother came from a musical family. So she loved the idea of having music around and getting me music lessons. My dad always kind of wanted to be a performer. He's got a great voice. He's got a big personality. So he always loved the idea of being like a, an entertainer, a singer, dancer kind of thing. So th that was in the air in my house. And then when you add that into the, the context of being in New Orleans, where you had access to so much music and access to my being able to perform if I was so inclined, which I was, it was kind of like the perfect storm for a person like me who had qualities from both parents and the ability to to sort of let it all out, you know, whenever See, I wanted. Your, did your parents bring that sense of entertainment into their practice? I mean, district attorney, law and judge, did you, did you ever see them in their in their work where they they went beyond the book and started to bring personality even to that job not not in the, not in an entertainment sense but like you know my father you know they were both in politics so they were public servants so they they would make political speeches and talk you know, so in that way i i saw like my dad was 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 an amazing speaker is an amazing speaker um my dad's really charismatic he has the ability to communicate with people but it was never like like silliness or like, I don't want to say what I do is silly, but they, they never like entertained in the way that I entertain until much later when, and this is a completely different topic when my father would sing in nightclubs because he loved to sing, but that was much, much later. And he did that for, for fun as like a hobby. But at, when I was growing up, no, I mean, my dad, you know, it's a district attorney, man, that's a tough job. And you know, it wasn't wasn't a whole lot of laughs going on over there. Uh, no way I was implying it in terms of. Joking. Oh, I know that. I know this that the politics and that. But I want to go back. You're a protege at age three. You're starting to already sing for smiles. You're they see this musicality in you. And then by age eight or nine, you're playing Beethoven with the with the symphony orchestra. Is that correct? And how talented you were at such a young age? I was doing that. I mean, I was playing at three and then I started um playing publicly probably around five or six. And then I played with, yeah, I was playing a, a Beethoven piano concerto with the orchestra around, around nine, 10, something like that. And I started making albums at nine. And the, the, the main thing is that I had 
two parents that wanted that to happen, just like they wanted my sister to follow her dreams. She, she was interested in languages. So we had like a woman from Saudi Arabia living with us, teaching her Arabic at, at 13. So they were both incredible parents in that way. They, they provided us with, with everything we needed to, to succeed. How important that is, is a lesson in life to just have parents that really say, if that's something you're passionate about, let's invest in it. Versus, you know, so often they say, well, you can do that later in life, but first you got to get a degree here. When did you decide that this was it? This is going to be what Harry Connor Jr. is going to do, uh, pursue music and everything that it, that it allowed you to do. It was as long as I could remember, because I never really had any any skills outside of music. I, I'm a terrible student. Um, I, I didn't do well in school. I was a horrible athlete. I didn't, you know, I wasn't fast. I couldn't catch a ball, couldn't throw a ball, couldn't do any of that stuff. Um, and so those skills became dormant very quickly. And all I did was play music all day, every day. I mean, I played in music competitions and recorded and, you know, after school, that's all I would do. And before school, that's all I would do. And I, I mean, that's all I did. So I became kind of one-sided because I didn't have much of a social life. So all I did was play music. So it's, it's all I've ever thought about doing. And, and going back to what you said about kudos to my parents. I mean, they wanted me to excel at it from a craftsmanship point of view. They wanted to make sure I was educated and I had the tools I needed to to articulate whatever artistic vision I had. But um, that's all I ever wanted to do. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. You can download the show as a podcast. When we come back, Harry Connick Jr. leaves all he knows and all that know him to take a big bite of the Big Apple. Amazing Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The Jill sitting next to me on the couch. It was just the two of us. Car commercial comes on. <laughs> You'll love this story. She's like, I don't like that car. I would never drive that. Oh, look at that guy driving it. Why did they get him to play that? And she just, and I'm like, are you listening to yourself? We, you sound like an 80 year old woman. Like we're, we're sitting there like complaining about everything. Well, I don't like that car. Well, I don't like you. And we just started laughing, man. And that's, that's, that's. that's, that's fart couple. Yeah, yeah. Each week, you can download the latest episode of Chatter That Matters as a podcast from your iHeartRadio Canada app. Now more with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Just like me, they long to be close to you. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. I'm Tony Chapman. Today I'm chatting with Harry Connick Jr. He's a protege at age three, cutting albums at nine. And still as a teenager, Harry moves to New York to take a big bite out of the Big Apple. So they sprinkled moon dust in your hair of gold and starlight in your eyes of blue. What prompted that move? Because you were leaving a base of people that you're already being discovered and right. great. You knew you could build a career there, but you, that's a big, big change. It was. It was something I wanted to do, you know, since I was about 13 or 14, because my teacher, Ellis Marsalis, uh, had two sons that had moved to New York and become very successful, Wynton Marsalis and Branford Marsalis. And they were like big brothers to me. So I wanted to do what they were doing. I figured, well, if they can go to New York and make a career playing jazz music, that's what I want to do, too. When I was 14, I I won a competition, uh, the National Association of Jazz Educators. Now it's the International Association. But there was a guy named George Butler, who was the A&R guy for the jazz department at Columbia Records. Well, I knew about him because he signed Winton and Bramford to their record deals. So when I was 14, I met George. And he says, when you move to New York, call me. Four years later, when I was 18, 
I called him. I called him every day for about six months and hounded him because I wanted that record contract so bad. And uh, I finally got it. I was, you know, 18, 19 years old and signed signed with uh, Columbia. So that's kind of why I went. So it's four years. What do you do to prepare for that moment when he's finally going to pick up the phone and talk to you? Yeah, practice. Practice and practice. Practice, practice, practice. Like you hear about gymnasts or, you know, athletes and the training that they have to do. That's all I did. I mean, 24 hours a day, because I knew that when I had the chance to perform, I had to, I had to be ready. And and when you have guys like Wynton Marsalis and Branford Marsalis talk you up, oh my gosh. I mean, they're the, the best in the world. So you, you have to be ready to play. So great that a country like America has this feeder system that if, you, if you're passionate about something, that, that you have an opportunity to dive in and be mentored and discovered. So that must be something that was incredibly important in the early stage of your career. Oh, it was huge. I mean, it was it was all about a sense of ownership, like the fact that I could actually do this. I mean, I never doubted that, which is why it's so important. People like me, well, I shouldn't say people like me, that I do everything I can to make sure that young people get opportunities like I had, because it's all about I never doubted that this was what I was going to be doing. I mean, it never crossed my mind that there was a plan B or what happens if this doesn't work out. I mean, I was, it has nothing to do with talent. This has to do with my belief that the opportunity was there if I worked hard enough. And, and it was, and that's a, that's an incredible luxury to have. And I'm, I'm well aware of that. Later on, we're going to talk about, you know, this incredible album along with my faith and, and this rediscovery of who you are, but how important was faith? At this point in your life, I mean, you're young, you're going to New York, you've got this blinding ambition that I, I'm not going to fail. Was there a higher purpose leading you or was it just all, you know, the determination of a young man that says, I, when I get that shot, I'm going to make the most. It was, it was probably mostly that. I mean, my faith was was pretty strong then, but I, I don't think I understood it. I know I didn't understand faith the way I understand it or think I understand it now. Um, but it, no, it was a part of it. I mean, I remember praying. I remember um, counting on my faith to help get me through those times that didn't look so good. I remember the first opportunity I had to audition for Columbia was by a, a, another guy. I'll leave his name out of it. But but when George Butler wasn't returning my calls, another person said, I want to come here, you play. And I practiced for weeks and I told him I was going to meet him at this place. I was going to play for him. And I had my suit on and I showed up at 5 p.m. and I was ready at the piano and 6 p.m. rolls by and 7 and 8. And I, the guy just never came. And that was tough because I was so ready. Just give me a chance to play for you. And he just blew me off. So how does somebody that spent so much time preparing for that one moment, you get there at five o'clock and every minute must seem like an hour and then six o'clock and then seven o'clock. How do you go home and go, I'm going to make the next day happen versus just go into a dark hole of despair? Because a lot of people would fall back on their back feet there, but you kept marching. I think it must be a, a personality thing. Maybe it's a genetic thing. I just can't quit. I don't understand the meaning of, of quit. And I don't understand no, like I'll, I'll find another way. It's just, it's kind of a tenacity that maybe it's a, de a developable skill, but maybe it's an ego thing. I don't know. An arrogance I, at that time. I just maybe it was, today, I don't think it's arrogance. I think it's, it's a belief in the idea of manifestation. How can you not make this happen? You know, it just it, people I talk to that are like you that are that do such extraordinary things, just really focus on this desired outcome. They might not always get there. They might aim 
really high and come back a step, but they go so much further than most because they just really believe in possibility. So, I mean, maybe it is, I'd love to know if we could bottle it one day, because I think especially now our country needs an absolute dose of this sort of positive energy and we're going to get through this. But I want to, you're in New York, you've got your album deal, but Rob Reiner discovers you. Tell me how that came in because he's producing this movie, which we had no idea was going to be as big as it is. Harry Mac. Salad, he gives you the game ball and says, I want you to do the soundtrack. That was wild. So I, I remember, um, I didn't know this man at the time, but there's a guy named Bobby Columbia, and he used to be the drummer for Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Whatever the reason, Bobby Columbia's radar was on me. Rob Reiner had just done the film and was looking for somebody to play kind of incidental background music through some of the scenes. So Bobby said, I know the guy. He's a kid. He's 20 years old. He's from New Orleans. Get him to do it. Rob Reiner called me at my house. I was at my dad's house in New Orleans and I didn't believe it was him. You know, I said, yeah, whatever. And he said, no, this is really me. Are you, would you like to play this music? I'm like, holy cow. So I went to Los Angeles. Uh, There was a giant screen in this giant studio and a piano. And Rob said, there's going to be a green line that goes across the screen. When that green line hits the end, you play whatever you think is appropriate to the scene. And then there's going to be a red line that goes across and then you stop. Had my dream again where I'm making love and the Olympic judges are watching. I'd nailed the compulsory, so this is it, the finals. I got a 9-8 from the Canadian, a perfect 10 from the American, and my mother, disguised as an East German judge, gave me a 5-6. Must have been a dismount. I could do this in my sleep, man, no problem. So, the, you know, I did it and I played. I'm like, what? I said, is that what you want? And uh, he said, yeah, that's it. He goes, there's a song I want you to sing on the soundtrack. It's called It Had to Be You. We're going to have a big orchestra. I said, great. So I sang the song. That was my only contribution other than a couple of instrumental tracks to that soundtrack. They had intended to use versions of these classic songs by Ray Charles, Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra. Well, as the, the legal process to acquire the rights to these songs went on, these particular artists representation didn't didn't want them to be on it for whatever reason. Maybe the money wasn't right. I'm not sure. So when Frank Sinatra's camp backed out, I got his song. When Ella Fitzgerald's camp backed out, I got her songs. And before you knew it, I had literally the whole album. So I sang their songs in my way and I had the whole album. And that album came out and I went from selling 10 or 20,000 albums to millions of albums just in a matter of months so i mean it completely turned my life upside down if they asked me i could write a book and when that came out what was happening with music at that time because you were unique i can answer in two words millie vanilli (laughs) best new artist at the grammys that year and i was like oh man i i wanted to win that you know, the, the usuals were, were great. I think Queen still had music coming out at the time and Stevie Wonder, Elton John. I think hip hop was really starting to take hold at that time. You know, so I, I was definitely not among the popular styles of music, but for whatever reason, people resonated with it and, and, and took a liking to it. So, you know, it was incredibly beneficial to my career. My life has changed. My world. When we come back, Harry Connick Jr. talks about when the camera replaces the microphone, when people realize you have the looks and presence to own the silver screen. Chatter that matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment. 
on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A big shout out to First Up with RBCX Music that promotes emerging Canadian artists. They provide a platform for these artists to perform, to find new fans through media exposure and access industry experts and mentors. RBC is enabling Canadian talent to continue to hone their craft, progress their careers, and follow their passions. Supporting Canadian artists matters to RBC. Guess where I am? You're live on the, you're on the New Will and Grace <laughs> okay, set. Okay, security. Are you, are you, no. Hey, Grace. You took my heart. You took my heart too, Leo. But I believe that we both are going to find love again. No, I mean, you took my heart. From the model. You, you uh... Put it in your purse. You shall cross the barren desert. Chatter that matters with Tony Chapman continues on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. It's Tony Chapman. I'm chatting with Harry Connick Jr. In safety, though you do not know. You take another career change when suddenly the camera finds you and says, this this person can, this guy can own a major part. This guy can own a movie. This guy can be part of television. Well, in, in many ways, it was familiar because, you know, the acting was very similar to singing without, it just didn't have the music. But it was it was a completely different skill set. I had done it in school. I, you know, did high school musicals and things like that. Very quickly, I realized this is just another way of using my brain as an artist, just with different technique in front of a camera um, and, and being the type of performer that I am, which is I love being on stage. I love performing. I love pretending and fantasizing and going to all of these different places. It felt like a natural transition. Also, I started very slowly. The first movie I did was an ensemble cast called The Memphis Bell. I was surrounded by some of the world's best actors, John Lithgow and David Strathairn and uh, Matthew Modine. And, but the um, critics pointed out that you were somebody that could hold your own, that could, as they say, could take a scene and, and, and make it special. So they must have felt pretty excited about coming out of that because an ensemble cast with that kind of talent is also very daunting. Well, it can, it can be. I remember um, I was of the belief that if you're an extra, not an extra, because I wasn't an extra, but if I didn't have any lines in a scene, then don't do anything. So I remember standing on the outside of this group and I had become friends with Matthew Modine throughout the process of filming. And he called me over one day and I wish I could do a better impression of him, but he's very soft spoken, very elegant guy. He says, Hey, um, do you want to be a movie star? And I said, what do you mean? He says, do you want to be a movie star? I'm like, well, yeah, who doesn't? He said, then the next time we shoot a scene together, come stand right next to me. I said, why? He said, because I'm getting paid the most. So if you want to be seen, don't play this. I'm not going to do anything crap. Come stand next to me. So I was glued to that guy for the rest of the movie. And I never thought of it as daunting. I just thought of it as uh, exciting. You know, I, I I never felt adverse to to risks or or. Never had any inhibitions, really. What did you prefer doing, the movies or 
you know, television shows like Will and Grace. They're all so, so different. It's like Jill and I, my wife, we have three children. You can't pick favorites, you know, so music is is home based. So I have the most familiarity with that. Doing Will and Grace is, is, is a specific kind of challenge that you can't get anywhere else where you learn a script on Monday for the Tuesday rehearsal. And at Tuesday, they give you a brand new script because they've changed all the jokes. And then Wednesday, you come in prepared and they give you a whole new script. And then Thursday on shoot day, it's a whole nother script. And so when you shoot the show, you shoot a take and then in front of a live audience and they take a break for 10 minutes and completely rewrite the scene and give you new lines. They say, Eric, you say this, Debbie, you say this, Harry, you say this, Sean, you say this, Karen, Megan, you say this. And you, it's just a incredibly fast paced. You better be paying attention. Or you're going to get crushed. I love those, those thrills. I live. That's what I, that's what I live for. COVID hits and your world turns upside down because there's nowhere to, to entertain. There's no audience's energy to feed off. of. How did you feel the first couple of days when you, when you realized that everything you love to do wasn't available anymore? My heart was broken for the people who are out there risking their lives for the rest of us. It really, really was. I thought about the healthcare workers. Um, I thought about the teachers. I thought about all, all of the folks who didn't have the luxury of staying at home uh, and whose job it was to make sure that our lives ran smoothly. I really thought about that. Honestly, I didn't think about me, really. And then as some time went on, it's like if you take that flower that's in the windowsill, it's so happy to get watered and get sunlight every day. And you take it off the windowsill and then you bring it into the basement and you put it in a closet and close the door. That's what the performer me thought. Like I was wilting. In the past, for example, with Katrina, New Orleans, you jumped right in there because that was available to you. In this case, as you said, you're kind of locked away. I mean, you're you're isolating like everybody else in the world. So it, it, do you go through a whole range of emotions with that? Or is it, did you just suddenly one day say, I got to do something with my life at this time? Not only did I have a desire to perform, but I, I, I wanted to reach out and connect with people that I thought may be in a similar situation. So I did this 10 series, 10 show little thing in my basement called Hunker Down with Harry, which was like a YouTube thing that I was just doing to entertain people because I thought maybe they might like some distraction and diversion. And I would like some distraction and diversion. I never really thought about it. Like, what about my career? Like that, that actually never crossed my mind. When you do a YouTube video and you're playing like we are right now to a computer, that must be so different for you because one of the things that always defined your career, even if there's 15,000 people or more, is this intimacy that you were performing in their living room. And you always had this incredible uh, sense of presence as opposed to being, how big can I be? It's, it's how, can I, how can I be with you? There's a craft to performing in front of a camera. And so right now, I'm actually not looking at you on the computer, I'm looking into the camera. Couple that with a sincere desire to touch people. I feel like a child, I guess. I, I, I love the idea of wonder and excitement and spontaneity and unpredictability. So I never really think about what people are going to react to. I just feel a desire to communicate. Hey, y'all, my new album, Alone With My Faith, is out. Man, I hope y'all like this one. This one was, was really special to me. It's, it's kind of more of a musical journal. And can you imagine the feeling you would get if you released your journal for the whole world to read? And then you're waiting around to see what they think? 
That's what I feel right now. I hope you, I hope you like the music. I've been drifting. I think I might have lost my bearings. Rather not say where I've been. So your publicist sent me out a, a, an advance of this new album you wrote, along with my face, a combination of really classic songs and new music. And I started listening to it because, you know, that's my responsibility. I'm about to interview you. But I actually fell in love with it. And I fell in love with it because part of the backstory is your humility and honesty and saying, like, I was the engineer. I tripped over mics. I, I had to figure everything out. But it all came down to saying it wasn't that you wanted to do music, you needed to. So tell me the motivation behind this album and what it meant to you and what you hope will, it'll mean to others like me who had an incredible honor to listen to. Well, let me first thank you as a journalist for, for listening because you say it's your responsibility. You wouldn't believe how many people have no idea what to ask because they haven't done that homework. So thank you, first of all, for that. To the fact that it touched you in some kind of way you know, it's hard not to get emotional about it because I didn't really expect for anybody to hear it. In fact, it feels weird to even talk about it because it was such a real-time personal experience. It was honest. I mean, all my albums are honest in the sense that I give everything I have and I, and I, and I do my best to sing and perform these songs in the way I think they should be performed. But this one was different because this music was actually being recorded to functionally help get me through this time. I needed to do something and I needed to talk about how I felt. I'm not ashamed to admit that sometimes I felt full of faith. You know, maybe if somebody hears this music one day, they're going to like it. This is really good. This is strong. And we're going to get through this pandemic or whatever it was. And other times I'm like, I suck. I suck as a singer. I suck as a piano player. Um, nobody's ever going to listen to this. I have people in my family that have died from COVID, friends, teachers, you know, a lot. 14, what am I doing? And I've never approached an album like that, ever. Am I an irrelevant man? I do the best that I can. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. Text me at any time. It's 71010. You can download this episode at chatterthatmatters.ca. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Sometimes it's really hard to find what you're looking for. Oh, believe me, I know from personal experience. I mean, you can look and look and you can search and search and dig and dig and still come up empty-handed. But I'm here to tell you right now, if you keep looking, you keep searching, and you keep digging, you will find it. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. You'll see the Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. My chat with Harry Connick Jr. continues. This new album you wrote along with my face. I think one of the things when you wrote this that I realized that this is going to touch so many people who are having to figure out how to survive remotely, figure out this new technology. You said, I was able to go deep within myself as a musician and a man, uninterrupted by the normalities of collaboration or human interaction. It was sort of a musical isolation chamber, a silent retreat. 
the silence only broken by the sound of my own voice, instruments I played, and the occasional microphone I inadvertently knocked over, as I'm not the most graceful recording engineer that ever lived. It, it was such, it was so touching to me. I was so glad I read this before I listened to the music because that I, I that your music came alive. I want to talk about your daughter because you got her involved. I love the scene where you're coming in and it looks like this. It looks like the worst place to record music. Uh, this piano that looks like it needed dusting and tuning. And, and <laughs> <laughs> this is about raw and authenticity. This is this funk and the jazz musician that, that hasn't become the Grammy Award winner, the Broadway star. This is just about, I don't know, the, the three-year-old or the nine-year-old uh, just playing for the joy of music. That's exactly what it was. And, you know, my, my daughter, you know, she took the album cover and she's a fantastic director and highly creative. And I trust her implicitly creatively. So I said, George, I want you to, we're doing Amazing Grace. You got it from here. So she found this abandoned opera house in this town, small town of Connecticut. And uh, she said, Dad, I, I talked to the, to the mayor. I talked to the fire marshal. We're all set. We can go in. Man, I get there. It was in the middle of a blizzard. It was colder inside that building. Like Houdini performed in this building. It was actually his trap door on the stage right behind the piano. That's all great if there's freaking heat in the place. You know what I mean? It was dusty. I said, George, what the hell do you have me doing? And so I would sing and like the, the smoke is coming out of my mouth. And we just, we just owned it, you know? And I said, you know, hey man, I, I hope you get what you want. And she filmed it and edited it and it is, you know, it is, it is what it is. And I'm so, I'm so proud of her for, for her accomplishments. You know, long after you're gone, she's going to be sharing that with uh, her grandchildren about that day when you were freezing and the piano right. collaborating and creating something together. And I'm a father of two daughters. And uh, anytime I have an opportunity to, uh, to experience something together, it, it, it is fantastic. So this album's what, how do my listeners get it? This world of streaming and Spotify and I, I think any of the any of the platforms. I mean, you know, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, Amazon, all of those ways. I, you, there will be a CD um, for those people who still know what that is. Um, but listen, I, I really appreciate you saying that because you know there's an arc to this to this album, and, and um, you know people might see Amazing Grace on YouTube or Alone with My Faith, and they might watch it on their phone, but I, I like to hear it with headphones and to kind of be in a quiet place. At least that's the way I forced my wife to listen to it. She didn't have a choice. I said, put the headphones on. I turned the lights out. And I wish I could go to everybody's house with that pair of headphones. And if you could have that magic wand and get people first to listen to it with headphones at the end of it, what do you hope happens? I, I, I hope they know that their brother was singing that to them. Because I feel like like this pandemic has, with its distance, has connected us in ways that we haven't really had the opportunity to do before. And that I am singing it to you, you as in you right now. We all express ourselves in different ways. And this is my way. And I've been fortunate to have people interested in how I express myself. And that's an honor to me. I want them to feel that, that we are on this earth for a limited amount of time and we're on it together and that we're going through it together. And if you have been lucky enough to experience some kind of faith, this is for you. And even if you don't have faith, this music is for, for you too. There are Christian songs on the album, but it's really about more than that. It's about people who have been given this gift of faith to help them get through a time like this. Sometimes I see a hummingbird 
or a rainbow. When I first had an opportunity to chat with Harry Connick Jr., I'm a fan, but a little pissed off. This guy's just so talented, good-looking guy. Seems to everything he touches, he does really well. But you listen to this interview today, and if you didn't, you can download it on my podcast, Chatter That Matters. This is a person that had a desired outcome in mind at an early age, and he never lost faith. He is really putting the human back into humanity. This isn't just about whether you're a Christian or a Muslim, whatever religion you celebrate, put a pair of headphones on, close your eyes, listen to this entire song, listen to the words within the song. Bring yourself into a world because as, as Harry Connick Jr. says so well, this is a short time we're together and make sure we stay together. Harry Connick Jr., it has been an absolute honor having you on Chadwick Madison. This song is dedicated- I wanna go on vacation with you. I'm, I'm honored that you talked to me and, and God bless all your listeners, man. This, this, this conversation meant a lot to me. I, I won't forget it. If you're listening, this is for you. Oh Lord, my God. When I... Harry Connick was an amazing interview. I could have chatted with him for hours. And then you heard an ad for RBCX Music. I wanted to find out a little bit more about what RBC, a bank is doing with music. So I went to the person responsible for it, Jeff Lindsay. Jeff, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks, Tony, great to be here. So tell me what the X stands for in RBCX music. The X is, is all, you know, to signify how, you know, endemic collaborations are within the space. So you'll often see Drake, X, Canada Goose. It's really, you know, a fundamental part of being successful within the spaces we're learning as a brand, you need to find the right strategic partners, whether that be other brands or musicians to really connect with, with fans. You struck a deal with Live Nation that puts the fan experience front and center. Tell me a little bit about that. We recognize how intimate attending a live show can be. We want to be a brand that elevates and enhances that experience for particularly young Canadians. This is about providing value beyond traditional bank products and services. And so a couple of the ways that we go about doing that is extending access to tickets and discounts or hooking people up to meet their favorite artists uh, on site before the show. Harry Connick Jr. talked about how important it was to be mentored, to be discovered. Tell me more about what you're doing with First Stop, because I think it embodies a lot of those same values. We have a fundamental belief at RBC in the power of music. And this naturally transcends into our belief in the power of musicians and artists. We have a long-standing commitment to supporting emerging creatives through the RBC Emerging Artist Project, Music Video Production Project, OVO Summit, and now most recently, first up with RBCX Music, providing them a platform for exposure alongside funding so that they can pay rent, reinvest in themselves, giving them the opportunity to meet other emerging creatives and fostering this peer-to-peer -peer networking, which is so fundamental to success as you're trying to gain you know, no notoriety. I'm Tony Chapman, let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.